Good afternoon, everybody. Tia, I need to warn you that these people have been in class for six hours. And yeah, they're, they're, I have a feeling you're going to bring them around. But um, they, they, need, they need a little something here. Okay, so here we go. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Wow. Good morning, Mr. Suarez. <laughs> Tia Blassingame holds at a BA in architecture from Princeton University, an MA in Book Arts from the Corcoran College of Art and Design, and an MFA in Printmaking from RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. A book artist and printmaker exploring the intersection of race, history, and perception, she has been an artist in residence at Yaddo, the McDowell Colony, the Anderson Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in Minnesota, the Santa Fe Art Institution, and the Nature Conservancy's Andy Warhol Preserve, all the way out on Montauk in Long Island. Um, that's about a third of them. Her artist books can be found in library and museum collections, including those of the Library of Congress, which, which Mark Dumination would have personally purchased because he's a tremendous fan of yours, Yale University, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and even as far away as the State Library of Queensland, Australia. She's an assistant professor of book arts at Scripps College and serves as director of the Scripps College Press. Please join me in welcoming Tia Blasingame. So I'm delighted to be here. Um, I understand you guys have all been working very hard, and it's been a long day. Um, so hopefully I can rouse you a little bit. And just to make sure that I don't run past my time. Um, so I'm going to present about five projects. Um, if my time runs low, I might skip one or two. <clears throat> um, and throughout my talk, I'm going to be showing artist books um, that explore uh, racism, witness to racism, stereotyping, hatred. Um, and throughout my talk, I'm going to be kind of showing how I'm attempting to engage the viewer reader in a conversation about historical and contemporary racism um, by using printmaking, book arts techniques, in an attempt to kind of seduce the reader um, with materials, color, tactility, uh, pacing, um, trying to slow the reader's initial um, impulse to kind of flee or avoid a discussion around race. Um, also, text, it might be lengthy, it might be very terse, uh, limited to a caption, it might be a poem, um, in an attempt to confuse or clarify, highlight or create a kind of secondary way of seeing, um, or to memorialize, um, and also to show how research plays an integral form in my process, um, research in its many forms. So I'm just going to get going. So I want to start by um, giving a little bit of background about my press, which I very seldom do in presentations. Um, <clears throat> and so my press is Primrose Press. Um, so the first um, item that I ever purchased related to letterpress uh, were these ornaments at the bottom, the flowers, um, primrose border. Um, but also kind of around the time of thinking about what my press would be, um, I came across um, these images from Primrose and West, a late 1800s um, minstrel pair. And I really kind of knew that I wanted to somehow use letterpress to explore um, issues of race, uh, whether it's Jim Crow signage, um, derogatory words, speech, etc. Um, and I really like the idea of something that might be um, initially really kind of beautiful um, at first glance, 
Um, but as you kind of dig into it, it's really kind of upsetting, disturbing, disgusting, um, but presented with um, a sort of lighter um, tactility, a lighter sort of um, delicate image um, might kind of slow you down from that um, initial impulse to sort of flee um, that kind of conversation. So I want to start with uh, artist book Anniversary. And I'm going to start with a video, um, and I'll just kind of read the text from it and then talk a little bit about it after the video. It's very uh, short. On May 25th, One hundred years ago, Laura and Lawrence Nelson of Okima, Oklahoma, under the stars, were lynched. and photographed. Mother and son. Um, so this piece, I was really trying to recreate my own kind of initial experience of um, interacting with a photograph of a lynching um, that would have been printed in newspapers, sent as postcards, um, you know, for me, my eye was kind of moving around the image, um, you know, sort of caught by the light on the water, uh, the lush trees in the background, um, the female form, as in this image, um, who almost seemed to be kind of dancing on the water. Um, you know, the people up above on the bridge, one person waving to the photographer. Um, but at no point did I really focus in on um, any rope. So um, in the image, um, throughout this piece, there are no ropes that um, are apparent. Um, and really, in using this really sparse text, um, you know, I'm trying to control the viewer's pacing through the piece, um, to some extent slowing them, at times speeding them up. Um, always kind of trying to motivate them to continue moving through the book. Um, at some points, maybe, um, the relationship of text and image kind of caused the reader to be slightly off balance, off kilter, kind of unsure of what they're seeing. Um, and really, as they're going through this book, they're seeing kind of snippets of the image um, and maybe initially unsure that it actually becomes one larger image. Um, and so in this piece, um, the image is created um, using etching. Um, and I would say for me at this point, this is kind of the largest um, etching that I had done. Um, so this is a bit nerve-wracking within the process. So um, the image um, that you see is the first print um, that was taken. Um, you know, prior to this, you know, I tend to do a lot of um, mock-ups, probably just from my architecture background. Um, and so I knew pretty much exactly where I wanted to cut the plate. Um, but so taking, um, doing these prints first and then um, cutting the plate. So obviously once the plate is cut, um, I can't go back, right? So that was a little, just a little stressful. <laughs> So the next piece that I want to talk about is Negro's A Handbook. Um, so typically I work on several books at the same time. Um, so around the time of this piece, I was doing, I think, about five other um, projects that were typically pulling from research that I was doing 
around um, the Brown family tied to Brown University, um, their slaving um, enterprises. Um, and so, um, you know, some themes that appear in one book might appear in another. Um, some background research might appear in others as well. Um, in this case, um, I would say um, the research doesn't appear in this book, but some um, themes tied to maritime color, maritime trade um, present themselves. So I'll show some pieces of it printing. So with this book, I was really thinking about what would, um, what would it look like if every African-American woman, man, child had their own handbook, kind of a guidebook um, that would give you insight into who they are, what they feel, their accumulated experiences uh, over a certain period of time. Um, and so maybe these books could kind of show the diversity of African-American experiences, maybe help white Americans move beyond prejudices, um, stereotypes, um, you know. And so in this case, I made a guidebook, my own guidebook, a guidebook to me over a certain period of time. So in this case, it's letterpress printed. Um, the colors are inspired by sea glass and shells that I was collecting um, on the Rhode Island shoreline. <clears throat> which I would admit, at that time, I did not know why I was collecting them. I would go every morning and collect them, um, but I didn't know why, but I couldn't stop myself from doing that. And I would say, um, prior to that, I knew that I wanted to <clears throat> work on this larger series around slavery, uh, maritime trade, uh, Middle Passage, etc. Um, and I decided to move from Providence, Rhode Island to Narragansett, Rhode Island. Um, just because I knew I needed to be by the shoreline. I didn't tell anyone that I was doing that because I couldn't really explain what in the world was happening. Um, and I think for me that was really important to do so I could be closer to um, the shoreline, the colors, and for some reason this collection of material. And so the text that appears are poems that I'd written um, over a few decades, and was kind of um, stockpiling. I knew I wanted to do some sort of a um, handbook like this, but it just didn't really progress at all. Um, the backgrounds, I'll go back. The backgrounds are um, pressure prints, so I'm basically um, using kitchen liners um, and some. Um, Mexican bark paper um, to get some texture to print. Um, for myself, I was trying to um, connect to um, summers that I'd spent on Martha's Vineyard, kind of a patio um, on the shore. Um, so that's the cover. So all that sea glass that I've been collecting for, I had no idea why, that I think every windowsill um, in the house that I was subletting at, by the end of the year had sea glass and um, shells, etc., um, became the title treatment for um, this piece. So a kind of mix of the pressure prints that I was making and this um, sort of color scheme that's reminiscent of um, the shoreline, but also that kind of patio motif that I was thinking about. Um, and so I'll read just um, one piece from this to give you kind of a sense. And it, each poem is a chapter. Chapter 5, Manhattan Passage. Baggy-bottom boys throttled, rattled, lined up chain to chain. Nose and lips touching the wall, need to take a piss. Soft, steamy, trickle rushing down denim pants leg. He stares at the sparkles in their oiled hair, at how they still looked cool, frickin' dignified even. Wonders why he can't afford those sneakers for his sons. The one with the blue-black neck wants a piss. More come with mag lights and spotlights to watch four guys stick their noses in the shit their lips are kissing off the wall. One chipped tooth and some bruises was all so far. They had clothes on. 
shoes on, spoke the language, were not stripped, groped, branded, sold. Only they changed staring the wall as the men shining lights laughed, smacking sugar-coated lips. Um, so there are actually two versions of this scene. Um, it's a scene um, that actually was inspired by a print from a printmaker that I met at McDowell Colony. Um, basically the scene is uh, four African-American um, young men um, have been stopped and they're basically spread um, eagle against a wall as a um, police officer is arresting them. And I would say this is a um, set that I'm sort of coming back to and I've been um, writing other pieces and just thinking about um, identifiers, African-American, colored, and sort of where that places you in time and what you might write about those different time periods. Um, the next piece I want to talk about is settled, um, African-American sediment or constant middle passage. Um, and I think uh, Special Collections here has a version of this that I donated. Um, so uh, for this piece, um, you know, I think there are six copies that I made of this version of it, and I'll kind of get into it in a minute. Um, it has uh, concrete poetry, um, regular poetry um, as well, and I felt there was kind of a lot going on, and so I actually had um, I made 125 copies of another version that just um, was the proper poems without the concrete poetry, so I think that's a version um, that's in this uh, collection. Um, so with this piece, again, um, sort of around the same period as Negro's a Handbook, um, again, really looking at maritime trade, um, you know, those uh, colors of the shoreline as well, um, but in this case, pulling from research that I was doing at the John Carter Brown at that time. Um, specifically looking at the 1764 um, to 65 voyage of the Sally. Um, so that was a Brown family saving ship um, going from West Africa to the West Indies. Um, during that trip over, um, there's a slave insurrection, failed slave insurrection, um, and uh, 109 out of about 196 slaves uh, perish. Um, due to suicide, injuries inflicted during um, the insurrection, disease, starvation. Um, so this listing that you see is the listing or accounting um, of the slaves that perished. And kind of uh, around the time that I was doing um, this research, um, the summer before, um, Mike Brown was killed and that, you know, I had um, sort of started the research that I was doing at the John Carter Brown thinking very naively um, that I would kind of uh, look at their archives, start in the 1700s, and very quickly kind of move um, century and century to the present day um, without realizing that the collection for the Brown family is voluminous. Um, probably every single slip of paper um, that the Brown brothers ever came in contact with um, is preserved very precisely. Um, and so around that um, time when um, Mike Brown is killed, I just felt this great frustration that I was doing this work um, that was kind of stuck in the 1700s, 1800s, and really wasn't speaking um, very directly to what was happening present day. Um, and so with this project, I felt there was a way that I could kind of um, marry the two contemporary and this historical uh, around the Sally. Um, so I had this list. I didn't have names of um, slaves that perished, um, but I had some information. Um, sometimes it might be how they died, um, you know, whether they're a child, adult, male or female. Um, and so for that, um, very quickly, um, I sort of got a convention for the larger piece overall. Um, so each section, um, whether it's uh, looking at someone from the Sally or someone present day, has uh, the person's name. In the case of individuals from the Sally, obviously don't have a name, so I have that number um, that corresponds to them um, from that ledger. And then the information from that, that line about them and their, their death. Um, and so with that, I'm starting to try to pull together some sort of a form 
Um, and so with this line of text, trying to kind of reconstitute it into some body, um, I felt very strongly that the pages could be water, could be middle passage. So in this case, 18 and 19, that uh, slave boy and slave girl are constituted from the text from that ledger. There's an example of uh, printing. Gives you an idea of the different colors of pages I was using. So each sort of section has uh, might have the poem's name if it's not um, that person's name. Otherwise, it has um, that person's name and some kind of a fact. Uh, about them. So in this case, you know, I'm sort of combining the research, the research that I'm doing in the library around the Sally, and then the research I'm doing about more contemporary people that ends up being way too much time spent watching the nightly news and protests, um, reading newspapers and online as well, to try to come up with what is that true line about them. Um, so again, you see um, that body kind of falling through water. In this case, this is uh, uh, for Eric Garner. Um, so an example, again, um, that title of the poem or the name and then some fact about that person. Um, and I would say, um, looking back, some of these are so close to being accurate and not, um, which I find kind of fascinating. Um, you know, each sort of article um, as someone passes away has kind of misinformation. Um, and so you kind of have to um, work to get toward what is the truth. Um, this is <clears throat> Trayvon Martin. Um, and then also in some sections, I will have a concrete poem and then a larger regular poem. Um, and that was actually very helpful for me to kind of free things up for myself. Um, just so um, I felt like I had a lot of kind of rules initially about what, um, how I was using the initial text to create these concrete poems, which was kind of a little limiting, um, and it allowed me to sort of um, break from that. So I'll go ahead and read um, Trayvon Martin. 17-year-old male shot and killed by volunteer neighborhood watch in Sanford, Florida. Street thug, brother, it is your smile, bright, innocent, gleeful, that breaks me. Aggressor, friend, such joy and promise captured in a flash, decimated by hate and fear. Gangsta, son. This is the poem. Um, and then I'll read one more. Relisha Rue, eight-year-old girl that went missing on March 19, 2014. From a homeless shelter in Washington, D.C., she remains missing. You are shiny and new, bright-eyed, all tooth smile, the trailing tips of God's fingers still evident where they molded you, pressing asteroids and comets to connect your limbs and trunk. All the pressure and compression he mustered to roll stars, glittering the heavens to form your eyes, new and shining. He marked you in the making as his, of God. With a bright, pulsating radiance, how blind we must be not to find you. Maybe we are not looking or not believing. In deities, robs us of sight to see God in a brown eight-year-old girl, rolling lost, a shiny new marble. And that's a close-up of that concrete poem. Um, and then I want to talk briefly uh, about a love story. So this is digitally printed. Um, and I would say I had just finished a lot of um, kind of heavy pieces and was a little burnt out, um, but still wanted to find a way to sort of maintain my um, studio practice as I was kind of like, regenerating and maybe starting some new work. 
Um, and so I spent about a year just making collages um, of every color of the rainbow and took over my entire house, um, just kind of as a form of self-care, um, but also as a way to de-stress um, and still be in my studio every day um, and feel like I was doing something. Um, and then sort of six months in, starting to um, write poems, edit poems, and work on new projects. Um, and so not feeling like I had kind of just was burnt out and not, not doing anything. Um, so this piece ends up being kind of like a love story, uh, or a love story to, or almost love letter to um, the book arts field and to craft. Um, but also related to my artist books, kind of focusing um, on social justice, um, really kind of a way of presenting my own process. Um, so it involves uh, printing, editioning, presenting, um, acquisition. Um, you know, so the backgrounds are um, those uh, collages, kind of digitally manipulated, um, and then the poems that I started writing as well. Um, and then with this piece, I felt pretty strongly um, that a lot of my work is kind of letterpress printed. It can be kind of precious. Um, and I really want to be able to connect to as wide of an audience as possible for some folks. You know, a letterpress printed hand-bound book is like terrifying, right? Um, whereas the same kind of content, but digitally printed, will actually connect to them. Um, so with this piece, it's digitally printed, um, and then 100% of the proceeds um, are donated, and they're basically used to buy um, like books for prison book programs, um, as well as um, items for uh, recently exonerated um, clients of the Innocence Project New Orleans. Read this because I want to go on to one more piece and have time for questions. Um, so I am, um, you know, I started in 2017. It came together really quickly while I was at uh, PBI, uh, Paper Book Intensive. Um, and then I got kind of stuck um, related to the image. Uh, I had certain uh, people in mind that were African-American victims of police brutality, and I didn't feel comfortable using their image uh, because they were deceased, and that just seemed terrible and kind of lazy. Um, but I also knew that I wasn't really comfortable using my own image. Um, that seemed to be kind of the solution to that. Um, but that made me really uncomfortable. Um, so it took me a while to sort of determine how I could make it comfortable for myself without having to use someone, images of someone's loved one. Um, so pressure prints uh, from personal uh, photographs, family photographs, um, where I actually have this great control that um, the deceased and their family members don't when their images are picked up in the media, where I can select the image I can control it, um, I can delete information, backgrounds, people, I can alter color, scale, orientation, I can just straight out lie you in the image. Um, and so that kind of actually gives me a comfort level that um, across this book and um, another um, part of this uh, series where I'm, you may think I'm giving you kind of like my entire life story, but I'm not. Um, and I think it took me a while to kind of get to that point. So again, I am the stand-in for um, these victims um, and really talking about kind of the ridiculousness of police uh, racial profiling. Um, so in the case of the baby, um, the baby is guilty. And I'll show a little bit of process. Um, so the matrix for these prints, um, they're all paper. So you see three in the drying rack. This is one. And that's it printed. So kind of depending on the, the layers, um, 
of the uh, paper matrix, I'm getting um, tonal values. So one color, different tonal values. Um, this piece, definitely very much thinking about um, image of micro. And this is showing um, the typesetting for the introduction. What are you doing? What I think folks that were typesetting today were spending a lot of time doing, correcting. And then so the image of the author as not credible. So I think I'd like to stop there just so we have some time for some questions. I try to kind of get away from, I'm just trying to reach you, um, because that's pretty limiting and kind of silly. Um, so I'm always thinking about African-American people generally, um, just thinking about you know, those first images <clears throat> that I presented, um, you know, where they're buffoons, et cetera, um, of just trying to present African-American people in a more kind of positive light than they have been historically. Um, but they're not always my kind of like um, main audience. Um, so it's kind of always shifting. Um, you know, like my edition sizes initially were maybe like five or six copies. Um, and, you know, you can only touch a certain number of people, um, but I feel like they're also videos as well. Um, websites and different things you can do, or, um, you know, like with Settled, um, reimagining it without the concrete poetry that for some people might be really off-putting and have them close the book, right? Um, but when it's just like a zine, maybe that hits more people as well. Um, so I try to be a bit more open than I think when I started, um, related to kind of reimagining and kind of um, trying to get a better sense of how to engage different audiences. But I, you know, definitely um, the sort of core group that I'm trying to hit changes with each project. Can you talk a little bit about um, what aspect of your own experience you take forward to your teaching of students? Sure. Um, so I would say when I'm teaching, particularly like a studio class, I do not show my own work. Um, and that's partly because I feel like I've been in too many um, studio classes as a student, particularly, I think more particularly as an undergraduate student, where everyone was trying to please the professor and suddenly their, the professor's style became everybody else's style, right? Um, and I really don't want that, but also because my focus really is race and racism, this hugely broad topic that I can do for the rest of my life, right? I don't want students to feel like I'm expecting that of them, right? Um, so I tend not to, I will let them know what my interest is and try to be clear, like, if that's your interest, that's awesome. If it's not, that's awesome too. Um, because I don't want students to feel like they need to do a certain thing to please me, just because I remember that very much, particularly from undergrad. Um, but it's been interesting just because I try to be kind of 
as open as possible around subject matter that students are interested in. Um, and I would say increasingly that seems to be around culture and identity. And I don't know if they just heard about what I'm doing or that I'm open to things or what. It seems to kind of be happening organic, organically that they're increasingly doing that kind of work. Are there poets or book artists um, whose work has inflected your own work? Uh, you know, I sort of think nobody makes in a vacuum, right? Sure, uh, sure. We make in communities of mm -hmm. other makers. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, sure. perhaps. So I would say, honestly, I try to make in a vacuum as much as possible. Um, <laughs> You know, like Instagram is wonderful and terrible if you're in the process of conceiving of something or working on something, because you start to see something you're like, absolutely no, I don't want to do that. Um, but I would say Clarissa Sly, um, every piece that I've seen of hers just like blows me away. Um, it's so thoughtful, so powerful, um, kind of does what I'm trying to do, uh, which is really have a relationship with you, not with me and the reader, but the book and the reader, and shift, shift them, right? Um, and I think she does that so effectively and kind of beautifully, and each book doesn't look the exact same, but it still makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely not a person who I, I don't want to have like a signature look or anything like that. Um, I think if you look at my work more, you see certain things, like I like different color pages and things like that, but it doesn't present as, okay, that's her piece, because it's each book is meant to do something very different, unique on its own. Um, and of course, Amos Kennedy as well. But I, I'm more intrigued by his books than, I love his prints, but I think um, the books that he, he made are really quite powerful, and I really wish he would incorporate that more, because there's something, particularly I think for um, the students that I've had when they engage with his books, nothing just kind of like Clarissa Sly um, or like Tana Wilson, nothing else exists. They just, they're there, they're in it, they read it, they don't want to share it with anybody. Um, and they sort of come out the other side changed and they really, um, it's really impactful and you can kind of see it. So I would say first I was a writer, I've been writing since I was a kid for whatever value that has outside of my family. Um, but I've always been kind of writing and that's kind of how I process the world and very effective for me processing kind of challenging subject matter and realities and kind of what's more challenging than race and racism in the United States to even understand what in the world is happening, right? Um, so I would say I kind of dabbled in visual art as like a teenager in college, um, but that's still something that I don't feel like, uh, it's always a struggle, I think, for me. And I think that in many ways is a good thing um, because I spend time and I just, I, it's a struggle um, and I'm aware of it. Um, and I sort of had those voices in my head from different professors who made, and I think anyone who's ever drawn anything had someone make some negative comment about their image making or whatever. Um, but so it allows me to kind of look for different ways of image making. So something like the concrete poetry, right? Um, whereas if I was a bit more confident around my image making, I probably would have had some illustration or something like that. So I think in each project you see these ways that I'm kind of working around drawing or trying to like avoid drawing. Yeah. Literally, because you have shadows, outlines, shapes, and 
exactly. They compliment each other. I, it, it, I, I won't have the, the teachers that I blame for that. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I kind of embrace it because yeah. it's, 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 I'm not the only person. I've had so many students and colleagues who, you know, like, I can't draw, I can't this, and it's because of, like, one or two people who said you could not. Um, and they're just different ways of drawing, and I think it's something that um, the last few summers, I'm doing a lot of drawing that I might share them, like, online, but I'm not going to do anything with it because I have this voice telling me, you know, something about drawing. But I think it makes my image making more interesting, even something like um, the etchings. Um, you know, it ends up with an image and a drawing, but really the process for me was more important. Um, you know, like working on copper, it's the scratching against the copper, you get into this rhythm. Um, it's almost like the sound and this sort of movement that's more important than whatever is the output. Um, and sometimes that printing of the image sort of separates you from the drawing to some extent. But yeah, I'm always working around this voice from decades ago saying, you know, you can't draw. So that's very kind of you to say that I'm a, a visual artist. I mean, I spent so many artist residencies, I would arrive as a writer, and it was actually non um, architectural history that I was focusing on, and then I didn't know why, but I was always drawn to the printmakers. Um, you know, and so like the poem I read, um, Manhattan Passage comes from somehow forcing my way into a printmaker studio at McDowell and, you know, asking him everything about this print and then just spending hours staring at this etching that he had done. Um, you know, so writing poetry, some kind of image making, and then um, starting maybe like five or six years ago, um, I knew I had like book projects, but I didn't know where to go with them. Yeah, and so I'm thankful um, to sort of have come to um, artist books, and I think every book artist has some weird, circuitous way um, that they come to the field, and then they get there and they're like, thank God, <laughs> this is what I've been looking for. Um, but I was always um, doing archival research, more on our architectural history, and there were interesting stories, but I didn't know how to tell them beyond like an essay or something, or a chapter or something like that, that didn't quite do what I wanted it to do. crazy broad, right? Um, and that's very purposeful because race is in everything, right? Um, so whether it's something historical, contemporary, an incident, whatever, um, I want to have that openness. Um, so if it's something that interests me, I can dovetail into it um, and, and connect very, very nicely. There are pieces that I do that are not related to that kind of subject matter, but that's typically, it has a purpose. Um, so maybe um, I might do a poem about, you know, I did something grunion run, if you're familiar with the grunion run in California. Um, and the whole purpose of that project was um, I thought I might want to start making handmade paper, but I hadn't done it yet for a project, and I just wanted to see how it went. And so that piece is for that purpose. Um, you know, or I might want to start using a different technique that I haven't, um, you know, I'm not confident about, so I'll, um, you know, use a project that doesn't have to do with race or racism to sort of suss out if that's going to work, and then I'll come back in. Um, but I just, there's so much um, happening quickly now 
Um, so for a few years, I kind of moved away from more historical research because there's so much happening that actually is all kind of tied to history. Um, and so having this sort of super broad um, subject matter allows me to kind of dip in when I'm interested in, in, in that subject. So it's kind of all over the place. Um, so I'm interested in your experience in the archives, but more specifically, um, like do you take students into the archives or do you um, encourage them to go? And sure. like, what are their experiences like? Sure. Um, so the students that I have now, I mean, we'll spend a fair amount of time in special collections. Um, we're more focused, like, um, you know, I just did a seminar around social justice, social practice in book arts. Um, so really looking at um, how different artists are sort of dealing with kind of challenging subject matter. Um, so not necessarily archives, um, but special collections. I think that's really important. I think actually doesn't matter what your discipline is. Um, so many universities and colleges have this like extraordinary resource um, that probably is going to have um, content that ties to whatever your discipline is. Um, so not as much archival, um, but for myself, it's, it, it's a comfortable place for me to be. So it's kind of been weird for um, the past few years for my work to not have started there. Um, but it just felt like I was very much out of touch, stuck in 1700s Rhode Island, and it's like the world exploded, right? Um, and I think for me it's all connected, um, but it wasn't as direct as it needed to be. Um, so for my students, I don't as much with archival work just because they're studio students and I want them to kind of be immersed in um, what's possible printing-wise. Um, you know, solutions related to artist books, you know, image and text on the page. Um, if they had subject matter that I think might be helpful, then I would, but I, um, you know, the studio classes that, um, that I'm teaching, we start from like zero and hit 100 really fast. Um, so to spend time in archives, you're going to be lost, right? Um, I know for me, like, I want to spend as much time there as possible, yeah. So, does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Um, Um, so I did show a series that kind of starts from stab binding and then moves to um, worn pieces, so scarf pieces. Um, that's something I'm really interested in kind of pushing, particularly this idea of, of wearable art. I hate to use that term, oh my god. Um, but particularly in that case, I was very interested in what happens when the people that are wearing um, these scarves are African-American women. Um, so in that case, the um, text on it was from um, slave receipts from the John Carter Brown. Um, so again, from the same uh, research um, as uh, settled. Um, and so what happens, I feel like that's a, a, a segment of the population that would be observed. Um, so whether you want it or not, people are going to observe and probably try to read whatever you're wearing and kind of suss that out. Um, so that's something that I'm very interested in. Another piece sort of tied to that research as well um, is a scroll. So it's a fabric scroll, um, cyanotype, um, with text from uh, sort of... Um, Inspired by um, historic house signs in Providence, Rhode Island, um, but shifting the text on them. So typically it's the white male um, house owner, um, but in this case, um, removing that first name um, and bringing in the first name of the slave and some information about um, that slave that would have been in that household. Um, but in this case, the scroll is about 16 feet long. Um, and really becomes kind of like a reconstituted family tree for the Brown family. 
Um, and in that case, looking at ways of reading. Um, so in this case, you have to walk back and forth along that, kind of mimicking um, a one mile walk that I took uh, daily um, related to that research. So hopefully, does that answer your question? Okay. But I have to say, I really, um, I love books um, and the book. Um, and I think it's so um, intriguing to sort of use book techniques um, to sort of present this work and make a connection with people, especially when you're talking about um, really challenging subject matter. I mean, we all kind of know, we all have feelings about books. Whether you love books, because your family read you books at night and you had a lot of books, or you have feelings because no one read you books when you were a kid and you didn't have a book. Um, so we all come to the book with um, a connection and a sort of history, um, and I love kind of playing around with those conventions. Yes, uh, so first of all, thank you for the presentation. Um, question is, I have a question, but I was asking someone. Um, how do you know when a piece is complete? Sunny, Um, That's really interesting. So, you know, the subject matter that I'm dealing with is really, it's challenging. Um, and I, I'm working with the history and contemporary experience of people that um, I have a great respect for and are never respected, right? Um, so I always have this pressure to kind of get it as right as possible. Um, and so I think that's part of why, you know, at one time I might be working on six projects to something's not right with them and I'll just shelve them until I can work out what needs to be done um, that's more appropriate or makes more sense. Um, so I think the last few years I've gotten better with um, listening to myself and kind of respecting my own opinion as well. Um, so I can kind of feel it. I think that's started to happen a bit more where I could just feel like I'm good, I'm about to kind of overdo it. Um, it's okay. Um, but it's sort of a fine line. Yeah, it's that's something I always um, kind of struggle with. Yeah. Okay. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you.